Greetings, and welcome to another episode of Theologically Driven, a podcast for those who want to know God through His Word and have that knowledge drive their decisions. This podcast is brought to you by Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, a seminary devoted to exalting God by expounding His Word. You can learn more at dbts.edu. I'm Ben Edwards, Dean of Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, and in this episode, we'll be discussing shepherding from the pulpit part two. My guest this week is Dr. David Dorn, president of DBTS and senior pastor of Inner City Baptist Church. Dr. Dorn, thanks for joining us once again today. Thank you. So last episode, we uh, talked a little bit about the importance of the preaching ministry in, in the shepherding role uh, that the, the pastor has and, and talked a lot about uh, trying to help the congregation see this needs to be a priority and, and allowing the pastor to prioritize his time to devote himself to that. I, I wonder if there might be some help in thinking through the, the benefit the congregation receives from that. If they allow their pastor to be able to focus in on this kind of ministry and then the pastor takes this responsibility seriously and trying to, to shepherd and feed and lead uh, with uh, the public proclamation of the word, uh, what, what will the result be within the congregation? Right. Um, well, I, th- I mean, I think that's right. I would go back to sort of biblical statements about why we do it and what the fruit of it would be, right? On a, on a personal level, um, I think Colossians one twenty eight is a, a great statement from Paul about his ministry of the word. And, uh, and he, he says that he, he aims at presenting every man complete in Christ. So, so his focal point is the, uh, the ultimate, perseverance of, of, of believers, right? I think that phrase present just a few verses earlier is, is, has a, a focal point of, of at the coming of Christ. And so, so what Paul would be saying there is the ministry of the word is the means that God uses to complete believers, bring them to full conformity to Christ and safely to glory. Um, and he, say, he says the same thing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 16, right? Take heed to yourself and to your teaching because that that's what God uses to save, you know, and, and I know people differ on it, but even if you, even if you limit it to sanctification, it's, he's saying this is what produces it. Um, I would take it probably a little stronger than that. Um, and, and so he says we... You know, we proclaim and we teach and we admonish in Colossians one twenty eight. So, it's the full and fruitful ministry of the Word which does this. So, uh, so if you know, if I was answering your question to an individual believer, it's you know, why should I, you know, why should I want my pastor to be able to, you know, really devote himself to the ministry of the Word? It's well, it's because that's what's good for your soul and your growth in Christ likeness and. Uh, making progress toward what God's goal for you is to be like Christ, you know. So, so I think that I mean, if you take a passage like Ephesians four, you know, you know when Christ ascended, He gave gifts, included the pastors and teachers, and and so what's the benefit to the congregation? Well, the congregation's equipped so they can do the work of the ministry, the body can be built up so that everyone comes to unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, that they, they're conformed to the full measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that they're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine right, and the cunning craftiness of men. So, so I'd say if you want 
if you want the congregation to be healthy and, and see that as spiritual maturity and fruitful ministry, because that's what it goes to, each part supplying, well, here's Jesus' answer. He gives pastors and teachers, right? So, so we, should, we should see in it the value that comes to the congregation uh, so that the congregation is growing in Christ and serving Christ more faithfully, and individual believers are growing in Christ and reflecting his character. And so in a sense, the, the preaching ministry has a, a goal both of individuals becoming more like Christ and the body as a whole becoming more like Christ. Is there anything in particular that the, the pastor should be thinking if he's going to try to get to that goal of what do I need to do to make sure that we get there? Right. Yeah. So let me just, uh, let me say one more s- step, right? So I think on a personal level as well, uh, I, I think if a pastor is really doing what's supposed to be done with the exposition of the word, then individual believers are learning how to read their Bible, right? They're learning how to think theologically. Uh, they're learning how to practice discernment, right? So that that you're actually exhibiting that in the task. And congregationally, the the church, I think, is getting a shared interpretation of what the Christian life is and what the mission of the church is. And that's that's how the culture of the church is built, right? When people start to have a shared understanding of what is normal. That's what forms the culture. And the, and the ministry of the word is going to be the way that that shared interpretation is because it's not, it's not really the pastor's interpretation of things. If he's doing exposition, it is that the congregation is coming to see the way that God thinks about these things. And they start to interpret things from God's perspective, and that creates a culture in the church that that um, is healthy and united in it. And and so I think that you know that side of it. Now that means then uh, I should be sort of thinking. So what 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 is that? You know what what does what does Christ likeness look like? <laughs> And, and what does a healthy congregation look like? What does a congregation that's, that's rallied around a clear understanding of the mission of Jesus Christ look like? Because this would go into the fact of that your pulpit ministry, the preaching of the word, is an exercise of leadership by helping people see those things from the scriptures so that they begin to value them, they believe them, and then those values start to produce appropriate changes in their life. So so, so if I, I mean, I don't know if this is the right way. I was thinking about it after the last time we talked, because I don't want to diminish, I don't want, I don't, I'm not trying to diminish uh, one of these in favor of the other. I'm trying to distinguish them from each other, right? Preaching isn't, a Bible lecture in a classroom, right? So if I'm preaching through Romans 5 through 8 in in the gathering of God's people for worship, I am actually doing something different than if I were teaching a Bible institute or a seminary class on Rome or even I think a Sunday school class on Romans 5 through 8. 
the 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 difference between me uh, seeing the primary focus of what I'm doing is is content oriented. Right, I'm going to walk them through these interpretations. I'm going to help them understand the text, and 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 really, they're filling up their notebook. Right, they're 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 gonna they're going to you know if I took a a Bible class on the Book of Romans, that's going to be handled differently than if I'm sitting under the exposition of Romans in the context of worship. And and that's the part that I think sometimes. Uh, you know, you can make artificial distinctions, but what I would say is the the difference um, for me is when I'm talking about the pastor theologian, because I'm always thinking, what are the implications of this passage for a uh, our understanding of, and I would just say there, aka our theology of the Christian life, the church. Right, so so you you're if you're if you're doing your job as a pastor theologian, you are always testing. I mean, you're, you're always handling the text of Scripture with at least two concerns going on: is my understanding of this text consistent with the overall theology of Scripture? Right, so there's a check there. Because I can't take any passage to mean something that contradicts the unified message of Scripture or, or the clear teaching in another passage. So I, I've always got to do that kind of check work. But I also am not just asking, is, is my understanding consistent? How does my understanding of this text contribute to this overall message about Right, so if I'm looking at text, for instance, that teaches um, about the Christian life and suffering, I I need to understand this text in light of that overall teaching, but also need to say, so how does this how does this fit in? How does it correlate with the rest of it? And that's what I'm doing theology. Right, so. So that's a that's what's going on. So what I would probably argue for that we we could all strengthen our preaching is if we actually improved, and I'm not sure this is the best word, but if we improved the grid through which we were looking for those connections, right? So um, if I know. I mean, so several years ago, I did a, I did, I preached a message at um, a missions gathering, and it was, and then I did it actually in our conference after that. But it was preaching missions from the text of Scripture. So this, I'm going to use this like as an illustration of it. My point was, uh, you go here's what you go through when you handle a text: interpretation, and then what I've just been talking about, correlation, and then you move to application. All right, so so if I'm gonna if I want to consistently right I want to consistently challenge the local church of which I'm a shepherd about us thinking and and doing right with regard to the Great Commission if I if I reduce that to like two sermons a year at a missions conference I'm missing out on the opportunity to shape the culture of the church, the thinking of the church. Instead, I should be thinking, 
Right. My understanding of the Great Commission and its ramifications for our church is so clear that when I deal with any text, I actually can stop and go, does this have any ramification on our understanding of fulfilling the Great Commission? That's the correlation part. Right? Does this contribute in any way to my understanding of Great Commission ministry? And if I answer yes to that, then I've also then said, okay, so this is a place where I can help I can help the congregation understand how uh, the Bible fits together on this, right? Because if you go, Jesus told us what to do in, in, in the Gospels. The, Acts, the book of Acts, they're doing what Jesus said. The epistles are shedding more information on the fulfillment of that mission. Then I, I actually have lots of texts that give me insight on, for instance, what it means to be a disciple, to make a disciple. Uh, why we have authority to go anywhere with the name of Christ. Right? Why we must go anytime I encounter a passage about the lordship of Christ. Um, what it means to be being taught everything that Christ commanded. Right. So if I'm preaching through uh, the pastoral epistles and it emphasizes teaching, it doesn't take me long to just draw a, a quick line back to you. So, folks, this is what Jesus anticipated. <laughs> When he said in the Great Commission, teach them to deserve all I commanded, here's how he set that up to happen. It's in the context of the local church, which is the pillar and support of the truth. Right? So at that point, I'm, I'm doing the kind of work to help build a fabric of understanding in, in the congregation so that our minds are shaped by the mission that Jesus gave us. But I get there, I get there by having some uh, grid, right? So the same thing would be true, and, and then I'll I'll stop and let you follow up on. It, would be what about Christ likeness? Do I have some kind of a biblically theologically informed grid for what Christ likeness is? And does anything in this text touch a part of that grid? Do I have a biblically theologically formed understanding of what a healthy church is? And does anything in this text I'm preaching today touch a part of that so that I can draw those connections out so that I can help influence the way people are thinking about these things so that we can be moving in the direction Christ wants us to? I think someone listening to this might be wondering if this, if this is what I'm doing, is I'm looking at the text and I'm thinking through what does this contribute to my understanding of missions or of, of Christ-likeness right. or of marriage, that potentially I might automatically go to certain hobby horses that I have. So missions is something that matters a lot to me. Every text becomes a missions text. Or I, I'm focused a lot about marriage. And so my application always tends to go to what does this say about family or about marriage or what does this say about citizenship or what does this say about justice? Right. And and certainly missions and, and healthy church marriages, those are pretty central to the Christian life. Um, is there any way to, to make sure that as we're working through this, that we are hitting multiple truths, multiple theologies, if we say that way, multiple issues, um, or that we're not just going back to ones that we tend to see very readily, but missing others that would be helpful to inform our congregation and give them a bigger picture of what scripture says? Uh, 
so I would probably say that's a operator error. And the only way that's going to be corrected is if the operator is self-aware. Right? I don't know that there's a way to stop that other than a, a person reflecting on their own process, right? Because I would think, and, and I'm, I'm just answering on the fly here, but I would hope what I'm advocating is like a, a one step, not I have to get three steps to that application, Right, I'm actually talking about the process of still doing theological interpretation. I haven't really moved to application. So, um, so the the text should be pretty closely related to whatever it is you're talking right. about. It's actually contributing to. So, so um, you know, if if so, my my sort of breakdown of what's going on in the Great Commission, maybe just to illustrate it, would be. So the Great Commission will result in new converts, right? Make disciples and new community of believers, baptizing them. So that's addition to the assembly, you know, from the book of Acts uh, that are submitting to the instruction, right? They devote themselves to apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And then I think inherent in it is uh, is actually the the reproducing of new congregations, right? So, so if I'm thinking that way and then I'm preaching along, you know, say I'm preaching the book of first Corinthians, right? I would be, I would be, um, doing something like this. And again, I'm doing a little bit on the fly, but in chapter one, when he's talking about the preaching of the cross or chapter two, preach Christ and him crucified, I'd be going, so folks, we you know, when we think about the, the task Jesus has given us to make disciples, what Paul's saying here is that is through the gospel and the proclamation of Christ crucified. We don't make disciples by, uh, you know, and then I might, I might take some what I would consider aberrant approaches, which are, are doing it more sociologically and minimizing, or I might do the felt need thing. Right, so there are people who come along and say, "You need to tailor the gospel to the felt needs of the hearer," and and you know, a crucified Messiah is cosmic abuse in our day. Well, this is where we'd have to say we're going to trust God and stick to the message He gave us, right? Because what Paul is saying here is the means that God uses to call people to salvation is the cross preached because that becomes the wisdom of God and the power of God, right? So it would be it would be anchoring up our commitment to make disciples the way the scriptures say to make them, right? It wouldn't be, um, it, you know, it wouldn't be like a downstream kind of a, like four steps and we get to this issue. Or chapter three, when he starts talking about you know, being a wise master builder and laying a foundation and others are building on it. And it would, it would be, you know, trying to show. So I, I would say at the, at the contribution level it is. So Paul's telling us something about his mission in Corinth. He was a church planter, right? He was called actually to plant churches, to lay a foundation for them. So when we think missions, we should be thinking like Paul's talking about here. Missions is planting churches. That's what he was sent to Corinth to do. 
And that's what we should be thinking about doing, right? So uh, to me, those are, and it might be, I might be subject to the bias, but I mean, those are like, those are right there at the text and you just take that step, right? Because what I, and maybe I can contrast the difference, right? I think most of the times I heard messages on 1 Corinthians 3.10 and following about building on the foundation with your gold, silver, precious stones, I only heard applications to individual Christian service. I didn't hear sermons about the health of the church and about the responsibility of the leaders in the church to use methods that are consistent with the foundation. And that's why I think when you get down to like verses 16 and 17, it talks about the temple. People mistakenly make that application to the individual Christian's body, when in that case, it's talking about the congregation. Or up above that, when he says, I planted Apollos water, and God gave the increase, almost uh, almost across the board, the application of I heard was about witnessing. And that's not what Paul's talking about. So my my counter would be that we've most often miss the point of text because we're so radically individualistic that we're not thinking about what they mean about the theology of the church, theology of missions, theology of congregational life. And, um, you know, so I think, I think it's got to be, if I could put it this way, it's got to, it has to be text driven theology, right? Cause there's no doubt people can get hobby horses and I probably might be subject to some, you know, because we've got blind spots, but it's, you know, it's not like, um, it's not like your third point of every sermon is going to get to like the thing you really want to talk about, whether it's in the text or not. It should be, this naturally emerges from the exposition of the text. And in First Corinthians 3, I think is a good example in that if you are paying careful attention to your interpretation that should already clue you in that Paul's talking about a church right. and not an individual. And, and sometimes we, we see language that maybe is used of individuals or of, uh, you know, the idea of planting, you know, seeds. We, we, we hear that and we think evangelism, but we're not paying careful attention to what Paul's actually right. saying in this text. And so if we've done our, our work of interpretation, then when we come to that step of correlation, we're in a better position to, to build off of what the text is actually Absolutely. saying. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, I think probably way, way, way back when we started talking about preaching, I probably said something about, you know, two types of preachers. The one who says, what can I say about this text? Or the other one which says, what does this text say? And I think the person who's saying, what can I say about this text is much more prone to go to their hobby horses because they're starting with something that they think is interesting rather than letting the text control the whole direction of where this is going, right? Here's, here's what it says, here's what it means, and here's its significance. If I'm working out from the text, then it, I mean, obviously somebody can, I mean, we're all prone to error, so I don't, I'm not saying it's an infallible process because we're fallible people, but I think there's guardrails on it because I'm, at some point I'm gonna have to, like put my finger on a part of the text and ask the people that are listening to me, like, you see these words? This is why I'm coming to this conclusion, right? And, and, and if they're not going to be able to see that in the text, then I probably have a problem, right? I'm, I'm now reading something 
from outside of the text into the text. And that's what I'm not talking about. I'm going, well, when I'm thinking about where this has ramifications, I have to know. I mean, what I'd say is I'm, I'm simply adding another layer to, if I put it this way, right? If I'm wanting to understand the theology in any text, I could go, does this say anything about theology proper? Does this say anything about bibliology? Does this say anything about Christology, pneumatology? I mean, I can walk through the categories of theology and ask myself, is my text contributing anything to that? And I don't think anybody would really object to that. What I'm saying is, when I understand the mission that Jesus has entrusted to us, can I go through my text and say, does this have anything that bears on the understanding of what it means to make a disciple? Does this have anything that bears on my understanding of ecclesiology? Does this have anything that bears on my, uh, my understanding of restricted access nations? Right? Because if he's got all authority and we can go anywhere, how does this help me fill this in? Right? So I'm preaching through Acts and I see Paul, uh, Peter and James say, you know, we must obey God rather than men. And I'm going, okay, so they're doing what they're doing because Jesus told them to do this. So they're essentially saying, Jesus has greater authority than you do. So that helps me understand how I should be thinking, right? That the authority of the risen Lord supersedes all human political and governmental authority, right? And, and that would be to me a legitimate correlation in Acts chapters 4 and 5 where I work through that. Or it might be just the reverse. I'm in Romans 13 and it says submit to them. And I could go, so here's a question we have to wrestle with when we think about missions, folks. What if the government that's ordained by God in this part of the world tells us you can't come in? Should we say, you know, submit to those who have authority? And what do we do about it? So all all I'm doing is saying, hey, I've got to wrestle with this. (laughs) I mean, God's people, if they're paying attention, are going to ask that question. Because I've been asked, I've been asked, just about any time I preach in a missions conference and I say, we can go anywhere. They go, well, what about Romans 13? So when I'm preaching Romans 13, why wouldn't I stop and say, hey, we need to wrestle with a possible, what we might think is a contradiction. Jesus tells us to go and Paul tells us to obey. How do we handle that? That's theology. Right, so, so all I'm saying is I have I have on my radar the kinds of things that if I'm going to lead God's people to a coherent, consistent application of truth, I'm, I, I should be thinking about. I should have wrestled with myself, and I should be helping them think their way through that. And I think, I think having the Great Commission clearly in our heart helps us with that. I think having a clear understanding of what it means to be Christ-like. You know, wrestling through what is what is Christ likeness, not in just sort of like an abstract, but what would be some specific things about that that I wanna I wanna think about so that I can keep pulling those kinds of truths up in front of God's people to think about as we handle the text. Could we maybe just tease this out as an example then? What are some specific things? If I'm thinking about Christ likeness right. and I'm thinking I want my, my church to be like Christ. I want the members of my church to be more like Christ. What might be some specific right. things I have in mind then? 
Yeah, that's it. I mean, so uh, here's what for me. Okay, so if I could put it, I'm just going to and I, I would I'm going to say this as suggestive, not normative. Right. Um, years ago, I did a series walking through this that honestly, uh, I probably should say, was sparked sort of by uh, Henry Skugel's book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. So, so I had read that, and it really sort of you know prompted me to start thinking. Okay, I need to sort of wrestle through this, right? So, so I started with the core principle in First John two six, right? That that um, the one who knows God, right, walks like Jesus walked. So basically, John's saying that our life should be like Jesus' life. Right. Which to me means then I should have some, you know, I, I should have familiarity with how Jesus conducted himself. How did he walk in this world? Right. And, and again, it'd have to be in principial kinds of forms. Right. So, so I started to think through categories that, uh, and, and what I, uh, I mean, I, what I'd say is I don't think I came up with anything like new or novel, just was a way for me to organize my thinking, right? So what was Jesus' aim in his life? He tells us in John chapter 17, I have glorified you upon the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do, right? And he sort of confirms that in John 4, where he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. So, so here's where I step back from that and I say, all right, so if someone's going to be living like Jesus, then their greatest ambition in life is to do the thing that God has given them to do, right? They want to glorify God by completing the work that God's given them to do because that's what Jesus said, right? And the thing that sustained them uh, should be doing the will of the one who sent us. In this case, I think would be would actually be Jesus based on John 17, 20, 18. Um, so, so you would be going, so practically, let me draw that out then. So anytime I come across a passage that talks about a God-centered or doxological focused life, then, then the text uh, should be pressed home um, so, you know, folks, this is this is this is what's at the heart of it. Means to be like Christ. Look at how the Son honored His Father by doing the work entrusted to Him. You and I need to have that same stance. The highest priority in our life must be the glory of God. We must be ha- have as the very center of our lives doing the will of God. We are created in Christ unto good works before which he beforehand ordained that we'd walk in, right? So so what I'm doing is simply uh, trying to make the connection, right? It's not an abstraction about being God-centered, but it actually has concrete expression in the choices and priorities of my life just like Jesus. Jesus Jesus was controlled by this pride. His food was to do the will of him. Right? So, so aim or ambition, affections, right? Clearly Jesus taught love for God, love for man. And that those affections then I should be going, all right, so we're, you know, I'm always sort of keeping those on the radar. What about their love for God, love for those made in God's image? 
Actually, those are connected with the first in that uh, the Bible talks about those as the fulfillment of the law. This is how we, in many, some, many ways, carry out God's will and the right. work he's given us is, is by demonstrating our love for God and others. Right. And, and it is, um, so it's, I mean, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? So, so um, that, you know, that really sort of moves us into a process of saying, you know, we can talk about wanting to honor God, but the expression of affection, genuine affection for God is obedience to him loyalty to him, right? And and that extends to the overflowing of our love for God into those who are made in his image uh, with a higher priority, if I could put it that way, on our Christian family, right? Do good to all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. So so God establishes something of a of a priority there for us that our spiritual family has ha, takes as our brothers and sisters in Christ. So, so I'm thinking through that actions in terms of uh, obedience. Um, I'm trying to tie their obedience to not just. Uh, I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to leave it as just a moral like Jesus did this, we do this, right? But I that's right. Probably theologically wrap it around. Okay, we don't ever do this perfectly, and our our hope in life and death is that Jesus did, right? So, so the act of obedience of Christ provides the ground for our hope, uh, but that doesn't mean we have no need to obey, right? It ought to, it it just makes sure we've got the indicative imperative right. I don't obey in order to be accepted by God. If I've been made the child of God, I obey because of an expression of gratitude and thanks and love and trust, right? But I would be pushing toward that obedience. I mean, if 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 Jesus showed his love for the Father by doing what the Father commanded, which he says very clearly in John chapter 14, then it, it shouldn't surprise us when he says to us, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? So, so um Seeing in the example of Christ, the pattern for what a Christian should live like helps me balance some of those theological debates that keep raging in our, you know, between legalism and libertinism, right? There's, there's really, those are, those are false fights. And, and, and I, and I can see in the pattern of Christ and his call for me the combination of love and faith and obedience, right? They're not, they're not opposed to each other. They're, they're not uh, contrary. And certainly I think an element of what we see in Christ is his uh, attitude of humble service, right? So, so and, and that's, um, I mean, he teaches that, right? Some men did not come to be served but to serve. He exemplified it in John 13. And Paul roots our humble service in his, right? Let us have this same mindset or attitude in us. And so so I, I just think I think in some ways it's it's me thinking about and again, I'm just saying this works for me. I'm not I'm not necessarily saying this is the way 
Everyone has to do it. But as I'm working through passages of Scripture and I start to think, okay, so individual believers are here who need to be challenged to to see the character of Christ in this and to pursue that, right, to put on Christ. Um, Does this text say anything about his aim or ambition or the kind of affections that he lived with, the actions he took, the kind of attitude with which he lived his life so that I can show them in Christ this or I can be going, this is a part of what it means for us to to walk as Christ walked. Um, so it's it's you know it's a it's a way to get you to think about right um, again. Uh, I'm probably talking a little bit more theologically than I am raw application because I'm trying to in my mind I'm trying to weave together a a consistent way of thinking about the Christian life. But it's not much, I mean, there's similarities between like sometimes people have application grids, right? And, but their application grid is, you know, like the, the, the married empty nesters, the married, you know, little children in their home, the single mom, the, you know, or where does this show up at the workplace or in the home or, you know, so they, what they're doing at that point is not, they're, they, what they're trying to do is make a kind of uh, process that isn't relying on your memory. You're actually having an aid to get you to think through the categories you need to think through. What mine is is like a step before that going, what things in terms of biblical concepts and theological truths do I need to be thinking of before I get to, so what does this look like for, you know, for the, the widow? Right? I'm going, what's the theological truth here that, that is for all people in all places, right? If it's a, if it's a timeless theological principle, then, then that's what I want to make sure I don't miss it because I, um, I'm, not, I'm not, I'm being perhaps more concerned about the, uh, the isolation of the truth in this text uh, then, then actually taking the next step to say, how does it correlate with the overall teaching of Scripture? Thank you very much for being with us today, Dr. Warren, and thank you for listening to this episode of Theologically Driven. If you enjoyed it, we'd love for you to leave us a five-star review that would allow others to discover us more easily. You can find out more about Theologically Driven with Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, dbts.edu. Look forward to our next time together. Until then, keep seeking the Lord.